0: This is Raina Moto's podcast, the Creative Mindset. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Creative Mindset, a podcast about what the future holds at the intersection of creativity and technology. I'm Raina Moto, the founding partner of ianco, a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. Is creativity nature or nurture? Is one of the consistent topics that I come back to time and time and again on this podcast, as well as in my own profession. Having been a designer for over two decades and having been a manager in various creative organizations leading teams of creatives and others, how to create an environment that fosters creativity is a topic that interests me deeply. Through trial and error and through close to two decades of experience, I've developed my own methods and theories. But have I really studied how to teach creativity? Not really. I met today's guest Joel Podolny only recently through a mutual acquaintance of ours, and I have to say he's one of the most academically and professionally accomplished people that I have ever met, yet he's one of the most down-to-earth individuals. After one lunch, which by the way he paid for, so thank you Joel, I asked him if he'd be my guest on this podcast. He's gotten an undergraduate degree and PhD from Harvard, taught at Stanford and Harvard Business School and was the dean at Yale School of Management. He says that he thought he would be an academic for the rest of his life, but one day in 2008, he got a phone call from none other than Steve Jobs. The ask from Steve Jobs was to start a university at Apple and train existing and new employees. For over 12 years, he spent time at Apple as the dean of Apple University, where he led the creation of programs at the world's most valuable company and arguably one of the most creative companies in the world. Since 2021, he ventured into his own startup, Honor Education, which helps universities and corporations with their educational endeavors. There couldn't be a more perfect person to ask about how one can nurture creativity. So let's get started. You were in the academia world for a long time, and then you switched your career into a corporate setting, a little company called Apple, (laughs) and you were there for a long time as well. And then uh, a few years ago, you started your own company uh, around education. I wanted to start off with, is creativity nurture or nature? And in the context of education, how do you promote uh, creativity?
1: I, I think it's, it's definitely nature, uh, or sorry, it's definitely nurture. If I answered nature, this would be a
0: very short podcast, right? We <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of defeats, it defeats uh, your, your academic background as well.
1: <laughs> right, 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 right,
0: right, exactly.
1: Uh, and, and, and in part, we know that there's a lot that unfortunately you can do to, in a context to suppress Creativity and and you know we see a lot of you know examples of that oftentimes in our lives and so I think it it, it obviously follows that there's of course a lot you can do if you're intentional about it to uh, uh, to create a context that actually elevates uh, and
0: nurtures creativity and by the way cre- the word creativity is one of those words that somebody called it it's a suitcase word in in that you can pack a lot of different meanings into it and there's no one perfect definition for that word. Now, having said that, um, I think there are two layers to creativity. One is similar to what you said about original thought, uh, an ability uh, to come up with an idea or an original thought from, I mean, it's very difficult to say you can come up from nothing to something just because these days nothing is, there's no nothing, right? Like <laughs> right. there's always something there. Yeah, but ability to come up with an original thought or original thing, and then the other layer, I would say, is to the ability to make that happen or to make it.
1: Yeah, right. There's there's got to be an. That's why I think it's 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 original thought and skillful action that that both of those components need to 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 be there. Um, and and so. You know, given that, and then we, if we shift to the educational context, what we're then thinking about is what type of educational context really elevates that, elevates original thought, elevates skillful action based on that thought. And I think oftentimes what we're trying to find for those of us who are designing these. Educational settings for for our students is we're trying to find this middle place between a highly prescriptive context uh, where it's about like memorization and imitation on the one hand because we know that's going to suppress creativity, but we also know on the other hand what's going to suppress creativity is you know, what we could call like the terror of the blank page, right? Like if there's if there's too much sort of freedom of possibility, um, that can be as inhibiting of creativity, as can the overprescription. Um, you know, when I started my PhD. I I always sort of think back to this moment when I started my PhD, and that for anybody who goes to get a PhD, that is kind of a moment that is going to require creativity, exactly the way we're talking about it. By definition, it has to be an original idea, and then you've got to produce this document on the basis of this original idea. And the first time that I sort of was like, "I'm going to, I'm going to come up with a proposal," I just you know, and I'm confronted with the terror of the blank page I was like i'm just I'm just gonna go for it. I'm just gonna start writing and keep writing and it was awful <laughs> it was just it was just awful what what i what I came up with um because there was just no structure at all to kind of guide what I was doing um the second time after I got the feedback from my advisors as to how awful the first one was, the second time I decided. I'm going to create the bibliography. I'm going to create all the readings that I want to cite before I even get to the idea. Like what would be the ideal set of readings that I would love whatever I produce to have to cite in order to get to that idea. Um, and at least for me, that created like enough structure and enough anchoring and enough inspiration um, that it was like possible to proceed without that terror of the blank page. Um, and, and I would give this advice to my doctoral students from then on. Like, you know, don't worry about the idea. Worry about the bibliography. <laughs> if, you, if you get a bibliography that you love... The idea will come, right? Like, cause you've created that space, the set of associations that your, your mind can start playing in.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah. So when you are, especially in your academia career, yeah. And when you were, I guess you, you are in a way teaching, teaching, teaching because your, your expertise, your area of expertise was education. Uh, right. What would you say was, say, the key learnings that you had about teaching somebody
1: you can think about like a a business case so i taught a lot of cases in business schools that's an artifact right you've got a lot of people who are bringing their own perspectives their own views um their their own background to this common you know learning object uh and and the the And the insights that emerge are from the conversation around that learning artifact. Um, And there obviously are a lot of different kinds of learning artifacts. uh, As I would move from teaching at business schools to teaching at Apple, uh, you know, there would be products that would be learning artifacts. I, I, you know, obviously, for those who are in the world of design, this is a very familiar methodology for learning, like sort of design critique, you bring a lot of people around a common uh, work, and you create conversation and different views. And that's what sort of drives the uh insight and the creative thinking forward when um but but at least for me uh it it was a it was sort of a new insight that almost regardless of what you teach you should be thinking about what what do we want to put in front of people as the basis for discussion whether or not it's an image whether or not it's a a video whether or not it's an interesting piece of text uh, whether or not it's a business case and then and then it's Socratic conversation around that it's a lot of questioning, it's a lot of pushing people on their thinking. Um, it's finding the different views in the room and trying to get them to work against one another that's that at least for me became the way in which I would think about transformational educational experiences and where we feel we walk out of the room different than when we went in, you know, we have different view, different perspective, different ability, different insight. Um, that's, that's how I would think about it.
0: Yeah. So just to dig deeper into the, the idea of having a learning artifact, something tangible, right? Whether it's a piece of text or thing or something, a m- piece of music could be, uh, and the conversation around that. Give me, do, can you think of a, a scenario like if you were teaching something, you know, pick a topic that whatever you like, right? And what would be a scenario where, and the types of artifact that you would choose to teach a certain uh, subject matter?
1: One of the favorite classes that I taught when I was at Apple uh, was a class called Innovation and Amplification, uh, which is which was essentially around what makes innovations. Really revolutionary. Uh, and I co-taught this class with uh Greg Christie, who uh headed up Apple's human interface team for over 15 years. So, you know, Mac OS and iOS, that was Greg and his team. And he retired from Apple in 2014, except for this class that he and I would teach together. And um and in order to get people to really reflect on what makes an innovation really revolutionary rather than just, you know, kind of hype or, you know, we, we said like, let's pick, you know, just great innovations from his So we'd look at the printing press, we would look at, you know, the Apollo rocket, we would look at radio, we would look at like SX 70, the automobile. And, and so to take, you know, one of those examples, like the, the printing press, which I think, Anybody will regard it as one of the most significant innovations in history. In fact, it's kind of the innovation And yet, you know. So when people are talking about you know, AI, they're talking about it is is it as revolutionary as the printing press, right? So so everybody knows this is the benchmark. And yet, if you take a copy of Gutenberg's Bible, and like you take a page and you compare it to the page of a scribe's Bible at the same time, and you put the two pages right next to each other, it's, it takes a while to even start seeing any difference at all. And so you put this in front of people and you say like, this is arguably you know, as revolutionary an in innovation as has occurred in the last thousand years. And yet there's hardly a difference to, at first view, between a page from Gutenberg's Bible and a page from the Bible that a scribe wrote at the same time. And then you get people to reflect on what does this tell us about innovation? What does this tell us about how we should be evaluating what's important? And what's significant in an innovation being truly revolutionary. And that would be one example, because you'll, you'll get people sharing different views. You'll get people saying like, wow, I thought like really revolutionary it had to be like way out there. It had to be this crazy. It's like, no, it doesn't have to be way out there. It's got to be based on a new set of fundamentals. It's got to drive a new logic. It's got to enable new, new possibilities. But it may not, on the surface, originally appear that different from what went before. But until you've got people looking at it and really seeing them side by side, you just don't get that insight.
0: Interesting, interesting. So, in in that example that you just mentioned, printing press is a, is such a, a famous example that people can understand quite easily. And the question is, how do you how do you become innovative? How do you create innovation?
1: Uh, and we would teach about Central Park uh, at, uh, at Apple University. Central Park was motivated by a very big idea, which was that democracies could sustain um, you know great public spaces because prior to Central Park, there was this view that um, uh, that, that democracies could destroy beautiful public places because you, if everybody could come in, You just couldn't sort of sustain the number of people. But Locke's and Olmsted, the landscape architects behind Central Park, they believed really strongly that was this powerful idea that if you designed it right, you could create this sublime feeling in the senses um, that would allow for this very peaceful commingling of the classes. But... In order to create that feeling, there was more gunpowder used in the creation of Central Park than the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, and it was the largest pumping operation in North America till, it, at a, till its time. And among the things that had to be done... Was the suppression of those roadways, this, the transverses that cut through Central Park. And if you've gone into Central Park and you've compared the experience of walking through Central, you know exactly that how Central Park creates that feeling. Cause you can be 20 feet away from one of those roadways and it doesn't affect your experience of nature. So. I mean, to me, that's that's like a really, you know, powerful example of one, by the way, an artifact (laughs) that, you know, we can sort of talk about and reflect on Um, Two, it. It it's a powerful example of this original, you know, idea of. Democracy can sustain great public sca- spaces, but now it needs to be skillfully executed. And part of that skillful execution is, you know, is this massive volume of gunpowder and pumping to create, you know, that particular space. Um, and so that's, you know, I, 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 that's certainly how we would teach about innovation. Um, and, 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 I, and I believe that's how like, our students and our conversations would start to unfold, which is... So you've, you've got something you want to make better. You now need to approach it differently. You're going to let the idea be the guide. And now what, what's, the, what's the technology? What are the resources? What are the tools that you have at your disposal? To start to deliver on that that's that's thinking different um, right that's uh, that's not being guided by sort of tradition convention it's not assuming what has been can be and so on does that example help
0: yeah 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 very helpful helpful yeah on um, you were talking a little bit about how you would teach um, innovation at a corporation like Apple that way you worked for a long time but More on an individual level, how do you get? And this may be going back to your teaching days uh, at you know at universities, but say like when you are teaching a group of students, and it's not just about a group of students, but you're also teaching individual students, right? How do you get them to be better, not just better academically, so to speak, but better creatively as individual students? What are things that you encourage them to do to get from point, you know, level A to level X?
1: At the end of the day, you know, I think probably the most important thing that You can do, and frankly, this would be a classroom or a team, but probably the most important thing you can do to really foster people's creativity is you bring them into contact with others who have different views and are skillful enough in presenting those other views that they can actually change minds. Um, It's one thing for for a class or a team to be diverse. It's another thing, it's a higher thing for a class or a team to have diverse views where the members of that class or the members of that team are skillful enough to change one another's minds Um, through some combination of rigorous thought, tact, emotional intelligence. And if you get A team where people are capable of doing that um, or a class that as a teacher, you try to foster where people are capable of doing that. Um, that's, That's a powerful experience for the people who are part of it.
0: In an academic setting versus like a corporate setting, right? I would assume in an academic setting, the dynamic among different people, say the professor or the instructor... Uh, and then there's, there's there are students, and um, at least among the students, I would assume the hierarchy is less of an issue. Whereas in a corporate setting, I would also assume the the hierarchy is more pronounced. I would say, how can people under the the management how can they do do that to present a different uh, perspective?
1: For the employees, uh, I I think um, there's there's probably two things, especially if it's in a company with a strong sense of hierarchy, and if it's in a company, uh, you know, I I often talk about this as the debate cultures across companies can differ a lot, and one of the ways in which they can differ is what's the threshold, like in terms of. The level of execution, of the articulation of the new idea, the case that needs to be made, how high does that have to be in order for somebody to propose it? And one of the things about very high companies is the threshold's are really high, right? Like people feel it. Like you better have a lot of evidence, you better have a lot of data, you better have thought this one through if you're going to make that case um so you practice i mean you you practice like you you know the first time you have that debate the first time you make that proposal the first time you challenge should not be when you're in the room with the senior leader um you know you you should you should test each other out like i mean you should get a partner you should get a group you should you know start working on it practicing debating right there 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 should be no challenge that the senior leader makes that they haven't thought of and worked through and discussed um because the minute the senior leader comes up with something new that will be taken as evidence that they haven't thought about it enough right so so show you have thought this through thoroughly. Again, it's not going to solve all problems, but I think like that. I think that that gets that gets you, a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a far a far way.
0: Yeah. Uh, what I was going to ask was, um, you know, you switched from academia to a corporate setting at Apple, and but hypothetically, and you know, you studied your own company a, a couple of years ago uh, with with the with honor Ed, but. Say hypothetically, if you are being recruited by, if you get recruited by another fairly major corporation and perhaps not as successful, uh, or quote unquote creative as Apple. And let's say this is a, a company that's been around for a couple of decades. You know, they were successful. Maybe they are sort of stagnant now. And if your remit, remit was to, was to introduce creative thinking, and and to ignite innovation, what would be hypothetically the course that you might design for that that organization?
1: So I would try to create a curriculum that was also gave people, again, that opportunity to practice, to practice debating, to practice challenging um, uh, one another, you know corporate settings is sometimes it you can have people individually who are hugely creative in universities, but they don't but they don't work together as much um, and and so what a corporation can do, what a corporation can be is it can be guided by a real strong sense of common purpose and if you and if people find real meaning and passion and connection to that purpose. That becomes the anchor that becomes that bedrock of constraint on which we can all be creative because we're always going to go back to that common purpose as the check for is this idea driving that forward or is this idea just different? And and so maybe that's a roundabout way to come back to your question. I I think one of the most important things you'd want in that curriculum is reinforcing that deep sense of common purpose. Um, And then if you can get that, and then you can foster that skill in collective engagement and debate and changing of mind, then you've really created the foundation uh, for that cultural transfer. But I think you need both pieces. I think without the common purpose, you know, then you've got a debate society. Um, you you need that, that common purpose.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> debate society. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what I took away is purpose, uh, debate, right? Or culture of debate. Yeah. Or the platform for debate. What's the what, what will be the next thing?
1: I think you also want a real reverence for expertise. To to me, reverence for expertise is different than hierarchy, right? Like, you know, reverence for expertise is we are trying to give essentially the airtime to individuals based on the degree to which they're capable of, you know, making... You know, a a contribution, and over time, people's ability to do that changes. In the beginning, you know, uh, of my career, I can make a contribution within a relatively sort of small area, and I can get better, and I can learn, and I can get better, and then I can make a you know a contribution on a bigger stage. But I think one of the things that sometimes happens—I don't know if it happens in Japanese companies—it certainly happens in U.S. companies—is you can go too far in thinking that like every individual is equally poised to make, you know, sort of a great contribution and then what happens is is you kind of miss out on those moments of just really, you know, brilliant insight that can only come from experience, expertise and, you know, and, and having been through a lot of, you know, debates and challenges uh, over time. And again, it's, it's a fine balance to walk, right? Like you can, you can go too far in either direction. Does, does, that, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. This, this is giving me a lot of thoughts in terms of, of how I design my own company as well, you know, and uh, how I approach uh, the clients that, uh, that I work with. That was part one of my conversation with Joe Polanyi, the founder and the CEO of Owner Education. In this conversation, he talks very crisply about very abstract concepts. He uses examples, what he calls artifacts, to make his point clearer. But still the topic that he was talking about was very high level and at times very abstract. and. It took me a while to digest and really understand what he was talking about. Usually, when I summarize my conversation with a guest, I try to boil down to three takeaways. Instead, today, I decided to boil this conversation down to three steps of making a company more creative. The question that I asked him during the conversation was, if you were to be hired by another company that has, say, many years or many decades of history, that may be struggling and your job was to teach that company to be more creative. What's the course that you would design? What are the steps that you would go through? And he gave me as he was thinking out loud what came to be fairly, fairly crisp steps of teaching creativity. Number one, common purpose. Number two, culture of debate. And step three, reverence for expertise. Common purpose, he used an example of the 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 design of and the build of Central Park as an example or an analogy of how an individual created something that is so big but also that has lasted many 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 decades and I live in New York City so you know I get to see the the current existence and current incarnation of of Central Park but the purpose that this landscape architect had wasn't so much designing a park, but the challenge of creating a public space where democracy can sustain the public space over time. If it's a public space and it has democratic access to anybody and everybody, it's usually the case that the order and the beauty of that public space, it's very difficult to maintain it. However, his purpose was to create this great public space where democracy can help sustain that over time. The public space itself was just a means to test and prove that democracy can work in that regard. So having a common purpose. And you will you, you have heard in this episode, as well as the next episode, Joel repeating the phrase common purpose. So that's number one. Step number two is to create a culture of debate. I got a sense that even before he got to Apple, when he taught at multiple universities among students, he encouraged this culture of debate. He also mentions the difference between diversity for the sake of diversity, having different individuals from different backgrounds, but also diversity of thoughts. It's more important to have diversity of thoughts than just having diversity of people as it stands. Because different thoughts working against each other and pushing each other to challenge and debate, not necessarily argue, but debate to make it better. So creating that culture of debate um, is step number two. Step number three, what he calls reverence for expertise. What he means by this is having different people play different roles in the context of an organization, having experts to do task A, or this role B, or uh, another responsibility, having different individuals with different expertise really be accountable and own that expertise and for other people to have reverence and respect for that expertise. So number one, common purpose. Number two, culture of debate. And step three, reverence for expertise. These three steps, common purpose, Culture of debate, reverence for expertise. When you hear these, they might sound quite obvious. But as I was listening to him talk about, hey, how would you create a program in an organization to in order to foster creativity? These three steps make a lot of sense and they might sound somewhat obvious to to many of you. But it was the first time that somebody articulated very clearly, uh, you know, such a high abstract concept in a very crisp and clear terms. And I was able to take away these three steps of making a company more creative as something that I could do in my organization as well as clients and organizations that I work with in order to foster and encourage creativity. This was part one of my conversation with Joel Polanyi, the founder and the CEO of Honor Education and a very accomplished educator in academia and at Apple. In part two, we go into what he learned at Apple, including specific episodes, what the difference between debating and arguing is, and what makes a company good at what he calls collective creativity. So stay tuned. I am Ray Namoto, and this is The Creative Mindset. See you next time.